we might raise more money. We might do this. Who knows? But I want to be able to control my destiny. I want to be able to choose to do those things, not be forced to. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. I'm your host, Drew Beachler. On this show, we'll be joined by founders and CEOs across the country running everything from B2B software companies to international airports. Today's guest is Sahil Lavingia, the founder of Gumroad and the author of a brand new book, The Minimalist Entrepreneur. Sahil's a very well-known figure in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, an active angel investor, and started Gumroad actually at the age of 19. It has an incredible story about the ups and downs of building and running Gumroad as a business. And Earlier this year, Gumroad and Sahil made history in one of the first crowdfunding campaigns on Republic.co that raised nearly $5 million as part of the new registration that went live this year around crowdfunding laws. Prior to Gumroad, Sahil was part of the founding team at Pinterest and also is an angel investor in incredible startups like Clubhouse, Lambda School, Figma, Notion, and HelloSign. I'm really excited about this episode and to share with all of you. Sah is someone I've followed on on Twitter and across the the interwebs for for quite a while and have loved his candid take on running a business. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Sahil and Christian Anderson, a partner at High Alpha. Folks, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the 58th High Alpha Speaker Series. I want to, as always, thank our gracious sponsors, Ice Miller and Silicon Valley Bank for helping underwrite this programming, of which this speaker series is really an important part, an important way for us to expose our community, our network to entrepreneurs and, and creators and artists and investors that are putting a dent in the universe. So I'm going to introduce our august guest, Sahil, and I'm going to I think I'm going to stick the landing on your last name, but I want, I'm going to look at your face to see how good a job, how good a job I did there. But La Bengia, what would you give that? Like a seven? Yeah, I would say that's a nine, honestly. Anything wow. that starts with an L and has a G somewhere in it and ends with an A, I think is a nine in my book. Um, Love it. Sahil, you're already, I knew you were going to be an affirming guest, so thank you. Sahil's the founder and CEO of Gumroad, and we're going to talk about his entrepreneurial journey specifically around Gumroad and what came next. And, and hopefully we'll get a little more background of life before that as well. But it's a digital marketplace for creators that makes it really simple for them to sell without having to stand up, you know, Shopify storefronts and just think about the kind of bitly of e-commerce is the way I think of it. And just removes the friction from individuals that want to sell uh, their products to customers and fans Sahil was employee number two. Is that right? I think so. Yep, at, I think Pinterest, so. at Pinterest, where he um, served as both a uh, designer and engineer. And I was sharing with, with Sahil before we went live here that nothing brings me greater joy than talking to designers and specifically designers who have moved into entrepreneurship and figured out how to harness that very unique way of thinking and way of doing that, quite frankly, up until maybe 10 years ago was as rare as hen's teeth. And of course, we're now enjoying kind of a golden age of designers as entrepreneur. And it's always fun for me to hear those stories because it's, it's a slightly less orthodox story than the freshly minted Stanford MBA that, that sets off to change the world. So that's always really, that's really fun. Um, Sahil's also an angel investor, and he is uh, 
an investor in kind of a remarkable cadre of brands, many of which you all will certainly be familiar with, Clubhouse, Figma, Notion, Lambda School, and HelloSign are a few of those. I am confident that you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. I, I share with Sahil, I've, I've been reading about him for a while now, but more importantly, I've been reading what he's written and it's just a remarkable person and a, and a really remarkable thinker and, a, and an extraordinary writer. And I think a very healthy person, you know, you get, you get a strong sense of how, what he's moored to, what he's grounded in terms of being like a good human being. And we say a lot that you can build a breakout business without breaking the relationships in your life and without breaking yourself. And I think that's an ethos that comes through loud and clear. I'm not sure you always thought that way, but you get the sense that your history and your background and your story has shaped, has shaped you in a really interesting way. So to kick off, and I, and I would invite you not to pick up the story when you were 19, maybe go back a little further than that. It'd be great just to get oriented around like who you are, how you found your way to Pinterest, and then maybe we can pick up the, the Gumroad story. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate all the all the kind words. It was yeah, certainly not easy to get where I am today. There's a lot of you know, wisdom is the the source of pain, or pain is the source of wisdom, that sort of thing. But yeah, before Pinterest, I you know I was in high school basically. I was in USC. I went to USC for college for one semester before I dropped out, and I went to USC for computer science because in high school I got really into designing and building eventually iPhone apps, and I started getting into that and, and specifically design web design through Photoshop really just Googling around, discovering this amazing software program where you could make digital art, which now is all the rage. But back then it was like pretty crazy. And there are all these tutorials on the internet, like how to make a water droplet in Photoshop and all these sorts of things. (laughs) That era, right? Smashing Magazine and all these sorts of things. And yeah, and I just fell fell in love with it. And I, I just started making images, but I felt like very quickly, you know, there are two things that happened. One is I wanted them to move. Right. Like I wanted these images to, to actually do stuff where you could click a button and it would do something. And that requires learning how to code. And then the, the other thing I, I, it, that happened is when you start doing freelance design work, at least this is what happened to me. And I've seen this as a pattern with a lot of other folks is you have your own ideas, right? Like you do enough client work and you're like, I have better ideas that I want to work on. Like I'd love to just design for myself. And so that was a path to sort of building and designing my own products. Uh, was really 13, 14 years old, getting into Adobe Photoshop, CS seven or something, whatever it was at the time. And then sort of learning how to code just to have more tangibility in what I was making. And, and the iPhone, uh, and I, I grew up in, in Singapore. I was born in New York to immigrant parents from India, but then they kind of expatriated to Singapore to kind of climb the, the social and, and wealth ladder, which was great for me. But, you know, I, I, there was no iPhone in Singapore, you know, for a few years. And so I had an iPod touch and I would just make all these iPhone apps and the iPod touch. And I would just <laughs> hope that they would work, you know, like GPS, like I would just kind of you know, have to like ping someone in the US to like, hey, could you try this out and let me know if it's working for you or whatever. But the iPhone was great because it felt very real, you know, and it was so design centric that it, I had a really hard time like learning how to code, which I felt was really important for me and what I wanted to do eventually doing anything on the web. I just, it was just really complicated. There's just all these moving parts. You can pick your own stack with iOS. It's kind of like, there's one option, right? You're using this kind of proprietary toolkit. It's verticalized. You're shipping to a single device with a single kind of screen resolution, et cetera, right? So uh, as a designer, it, it made it a lot easier for me to get into. And so I downloaded these iTunes University courses, the Stanford CS193P course that they have on I- iOS development now. 
And yeah, I just downloaded it one summer. I think it was the summer between junior and senior year of high school. And I just spent three weeks like going through like every day I would do a week basically where I would wake up, I would watch it. There's a Monday or Tuesday lecture. I would do the assignment and then I would watch the Thursday or Friday lecture or whatever. And then I'd do the assignment. And that was like a day. And so I did the whole curriculum in around two, two and a half, three weeks. And I could build iPhone apps after that point. Like I had all the things I need to do to really the fundamentals to build, you know, I built like a Twitter client. I built an app that allowed you to call a cab on your phone. What year, what year is this? This is like 2010. Okay. So we're like on iOS three, maybe. Yeah, maybe not even. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. I, I, the apps, it was like a year after the app store. So yeah, probably iOS 3 or very skeuomorphic, like still in that era, certainly pre 6 and 7 and, and, and when it kind of gets into that. Yeah, with the blue nav bar and all that sort of stuff, right? Amazing era of software engineering and design, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what got me into it. And then I just started making iPhone apps. And it turns out when you make iPhone apps and you can design and code Silicon Valley startups, want you, you know, to work for them. Cause that's kind of, even today, 10 years in, there's yeah, still sure. dirt of talent. Right. And so, yeah, Ben, and it's funny, like I have all these stories, like there are a lot of people who ask like, Oh, how did you find Pinterest? How did you find Stripe? How did you find Figma? How did you find blah, blah, blah. How did you write a penguin book? Like blah, blah, blah. And it's funny. Cause like, I just do, I just really care about a few skills, writing, design, and code are kind of my three skills. And I have one more now with, which is painting, but much less profitable for now. We'll see what happens with NFTs, but it's, yeah, I just really focus on getting as good as possible at, at those skills and then just shine a like kind of a lighthouse, right? Uh, as people say, and, and hope that people find me and, and suggest that I should be doing things. And so that's what happened with, with Pinterest. Ben, the CEO of Pinterest sent me an email. I was a freshman at USC. I think it was, it was maybe August of 2010 and, or October. And he said, Hey, you know, I have this, I saw your app that you built on Hacker News. You know, we have this web app that we need, we, we need an iPhone component to it. You know, Instagram had just kind of launched publicly at that month, I think. And you seem like, you know what you're doing. Like, you know, you don't have a degree, you don't have, but you built, I can download the app. I can use the app and it does the thing, right? You were, you were still enrolled at the time. At USC? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I hate to, I hate to digress, but sure, sure. why USC? It was the closest I could get to Silicon Valley in terms of a university that I thought was good and would accept me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so USC, yeah, it was basically between, we can get really into the sort of the, the nuance of it, but it was, I was picking between USC at Washington, uh, St. Louis, whatever, Washington University. Yep. Washington, yeah. Washington, yeah, Washington, and uh, which is an amazing campus and, and uh, UT Austin. And USC was, yeah, I really, I think it just came down to the closest to Y Combinator, you know, like that was kind of the Mecca, right. Of startups back in the day. And I remember going to startup school actually in, in whenever that was November of 2010. And, and that was like the first time I'd ever like interacted with like a ton of like surrounded by people where I could say hacker news and people would even know what it was. Right. Because even when I got to USC, you know, when I got to USC, I was like, finally, I'm in California. I got an iPhone. That was like the first thing I did. I got a two on three number, you know, all that stuff. And I went to, you know, I was in the CS program and there was like 200 kids in the kind of intro to CS kind of academy or what have you. And I asked, I was like, does that, you know, like, is anyone interested in like startups, my combinator, you know, this kind of tech crunch, that stuff. And literally only a single one person out of 200 mm -hmm. 
even mm. knew what Hacker News was. And I was like, holy crap, I cannot be at USC. Like, I, yeah. this, I thought I was, you know, a lot closer. But you were in the right state. So that's a start. I know, exactly. I, I was in the right state. But it turns out like 45 minute flight can mean a world <laughs> of difference. Uh, so yeah, I, I started doing contract work for Pinterest. I built, designed and built kind of the prototype and then very quickly realized that, you know, this was a big project. It was not like a one and done sort of thing. And yeah, it's like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about joining a startup full-time. A lot of other startups had started reaching out to me as well. Instagram and, and Flipboard and all the, all the kind of mobile startups of that era. Right. Cause again, what do they need more than anything in the world? They need people who can design and build iPhone apps. And, and so, yeah, I, was, I just said, Hey Ben, I would love to work for Pinterest. Like you're my favorite company. I think you have the, the a really sort of, you know, a great product and, and, and design sensibility. You know, can I work? with you full time. And they gave me an offer and I said, sure. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Sounds good. So I moved up into the Palo Alto in January of 2011 to be officially full-time uh, then. So that that's like the, the sort of my, my origin story in terms of my entrance to kind of Silicon Valley and, and that kind of, yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, a year ago, like in, I graduated high school in, I guess, May or June of uh, 2010. So less than a year from graduating high school to being employee number two at Pinterest. And then that's the, just the beauty of software, of the internet, of all the things that I talk about in the book and at Gumroad, it all comes back to this idea that the internet is like just vastly more efficient as a marketplace for ideas, a marketplace for talent than what came before, right? Like 10 years ago, or now 10 years before 10 years ago, like that, like I would not have been able to graduate from high school in Singapore, and then two years in, raise a Series A from Kleiner Perkins. Yeah, no question. <laughs> right? like, it's not, wouldn't have been possible. And now it's even easier. Now, I would argue, you, I, I might not have even needed to leave Singapore for a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. true. I think that, so, I mean, it's certainly over the last, yeah, three years. So what, maybe, so you get to Pinterest, that is a very, even at that very early nascent stage, very hot, high visibility startup with, as you noted, a very kind of principled and intentional design philosophy. What was the transition from Pinterest to your own kind of, first of all, all of that's an entrepreneurial journey. So I should acknowledge that for sure. You're certainly exhibiting even prior to coming to this, back to the States, high level of entrepreneurship. But when we get into clicking to maybe the more kind of literal or particular version of that, which was the founding of Gumroad, what was the transition from Pinterest and the kind of aha moment for, for Gumroad. Yeah. So even when I got to Pinterest, I was finally in Silicon Valley. And so my kind of schedule was every other, I believe I could be wrong on this, but I believe something like every other weekend, I would stuff it with meetings. Like anyone who reached out from Hacker News, from Twitter, I would hang out with every Saturday, Sunday, every other week, weekend. And then every other weekend in between, I would basically build something, either a new product or service just to keep things fresh uh, for me. And, and just I just really wanted to become like an amazing product builder. And Gumroad was one of those ideas. I had this idea Friday night. I had designed it. I actually had another idea. I wanted to make an, a Mac app that allowed me to have multiple copy paste slots because I, I noticed that I was constantly doing this where I'd like copy something, paste it, then I'd go back, copy the other. And I was right. like, it would be cool to copy, 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 paste, 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 paste. Anyway, it still hasn't been solved, but maybe it's not that big of a problem, but to compose a tweet, both with a link and a handle that's too long for you to memorize that you have to copy from a search engine. So I yeah, would, I'm really, one if you want to go and figure that out. Yeah. I, so I designed this pencil icon, this photorealistic, you know, Mac app icon of a pencil for this app. And 
four hours, I think it took me. And yeah, I just had this kind of a, a thought that like, hmm, I spent four hours on this thing. I really wish that I had this source file, this PSD earlier, you know, at the beginning, it would have saved me a bunch of time, right? Four hours of my time. I don't know what that's worth, but at least a dollar, something like that. I just said, I'm going to build, I'm going to build a product. And I, and I, I actually did try to sell the icon. Like I was like, okay, cool. I have an audience. I have this thing. I just need to sell to them. And I just couldn't like, literally it was not possible. Like if I, I, I like even went to iTunes, I was like, well, iTunes and it's like, no, you have to like upload three songs. And it doesn't, it's like a very sort of gate kept sort of institution. Even these, a lot of these marketplaces are, I stock photos, same, same kind of thing. And they also take 75, 85% of the, of the proceeds because they're driving all the, all the real distribution. And the, and the thing that I noticed the kind of epiphany that I think, you know, the kind of backs the, now the rise of the creator economy is that anyone can build an audience themselves. They can have a direct line of contact, pseudo directors, the algorithm and things like this, but uh, a more, a much more efficient way of getting in front of the people that care about them. Justin Bieber can tweet. He doesn't have to do an interview with People Magazine, right? And I think that for the content creators, like they much rather be able to communicate directly. And, and what I thought was if that happens, and I've been, this thesis and hypothesis, I think has been proven right and wrong in different ways. But if that happens, if everyone has a direct line of access to their, their sort of true fans, then they should all, the next step to me, that kind of, it would be to sell to them directly, right? Cut out the middleman in all these different ways and sell directly to your audience. And for a variety of reasons, that hasn't exactly happened the way that I thought it was going to happen. But that was the, that was the bet that, that kind of Gumbert was, is like, okay, there needs to be, there are all these people who have social media accounts. They don't even have websites. So there obviously needs to be like an e-commerce solution for people who don't have websites, which Five years ago, you know, before then would have made no sense because everyone on the internet, that was like what the internet was websites, right? Like Twitter, Facebook, like these things were, were still very, very, very new. But that was kind of the, the epiphany I think that I had was like, there needs to be a service to a lot. Like basically, as you mentioned, like Bitly, but with a credit card form, right? Like the, literally that was the, the kind of the, the MVP. Uh, and so I spent Saturday, Sunday building uh, Gumroad. You can find the source code. If you just Google Gumroad V1, I, I published out on GitHub recently. So people can really see like what happened that weekend, all the commit history and everything and shipped it Monday morning. I put on Hacker News, you know, show HN, my weekend project Gumroad. And I tweeted about my pencil icon and I'm, you know, I made like a few bucks and it was the first project I'd built. And the re- it was, it was the first one I'd built that was, I wanted to work on every weekend, right? Before it was kind of like, I'd, I'd start a new thing or, and at this time I was like, no, I really am excited about it. And it took me a while to really grok why that was and i think the reason now is that it uh, gumroad unlocked for a, a sort of different kind of creator what the app store unlocked for me right which was i was able to kind of outsource legal finance ops like all this stuff. i was literally just making an app publishing it to that like i was a kid in singapore like selling to the world i mean that's like an insane thing to be able to do even today like it's i'm shipping you know i'm in lakewood washington signing all my books that i, I, I want to ship out to the folks. And, and it's like, it's not easy to do and even today, 10 years later. So, so that was, that was it in terms of the story or, or sort of in terms of the product and the idea. And then I think just the bug, you know, when you start, when you have your own ideas and you have the opportunity to, to, to start a company, it's hard to say no to that, right? Like it's even being employee number two at Pinterest, especially at a rocket ship, like it, 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 it came out to be it, you it's, it's not, you're not optimized for learning at that point, I guess, right? You're optimized for growing as fast as possible. Yeah, for holding exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. Which often means if you're a designer, it's like designing 
the same, you know, just right. design stuff. That, right. And you're already good at those things. So I wasn't really learning. I was like, okay, I'm just implementing comments, but on the iPhone app or designing an iPad app. And it was fun and stuff. But yeah, I think a lot of people probably knew before I did that there was no way I was going to work at a company for a while, right? It was in- inevitable. And I even told the Pinterest, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'll be here for longer than a year. I want to vest and and then bounce. You know, that, that, I should, in hindsight, it was a little bit too sort of honest, I think, with 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 everybody. But but that's kind of, that's what, you know, that's how you learn. But uh, yeah, that, that's kind of how Gumroad so, so you push Gumroad V1 and you know, not to be hyperbolic, but it did generate a lot of interest, right? I mean, 50,000 plus, I don't know what they call upvotes. I don't know what, I don't know how you were tracking it on Hacker News, but a lot of energy, a lot of excitement and a lot of excitement from even the investment community. Yeah. Yeah. So that turned, and again, kind of like, as I mentioned, like, you know, a lot of this stuff has been kind of pulled you know, I've, I was pulled into Pinterest by Ben and, and same thing that happened with Gumroad. There were all these Silicon Valley investors also looking for, you know, people who can design and code and want, want to build companies. And so, yeah, I had a bunch of emails from investors saying, hey, if you ever, you know, leave Pinterest, like, let me know. I, I'd love to invest in, in Gumroad and I'd love to invest in you. And and yeah, all of a sudden I was like, wait, what? Like I could like, and, and you know, when I went to USC, because when I went to USC, I really, truly thought I was going to be there for four years. And and basically my goal was to go get a job at Google. That was like the pinnacle of software engineering, right? At that time. And so go get a job at Google, then go work at a mid-sized startup and then a small startup and then do my own startup. But it was like a 10 or 15 year thing. And all of a sudden I was like, I was skipping these steps, it felt like. And yeah, so when I had the opportunity to like, I was, I think I was 19 maybe. And I had a bunch of these investors saying, well, you know, like Chris Saka, like throwing money at you, like. I was like, how do you say no to that? And, and I reflect on a lot of those things since then. I was definitely in the kind of like, say yes, and then figure it out. This is a crazy thing. Very few people get to do. So just do it. What's the downside here? I don't regret it. But that, that yeah, that's what happened was these investors were like, you should start a company. And I met with a bunch of folks and, and raised the, the first seed round was, was in sort of late 2011, early 2012. And it was a, it was a $1.1 million seed round. It was like Max Lepchin, first round, Chris Saka from Lowercase. Excel Partners, Naval from AngelList, hmm. Danny Reimer from Index, Seth Goldstein from Turntable FM, Collaborative Fund, and I think that's all. In all, uh, but an all-star cast by by any measure. Yeah, a very yeah, very very legitimate, very legitimate cast. And then yeah, and in, in sort of three or four months later, I raised a Series A, seven million dollar Series A from Kleiner, Kleiner Perkins, and they joined the board, and and that was. Yeah, that was like the, okay, this is really serious for years now. Yeah, And we'll talk a little bit about the Minimalist Entrepreneur book at the end, which we certainly have some copies that we're distributing, but want to want to make sure that everyone figures out how to get their hands on that. Because there's, if you're interested in what Sahil's talking about and his story, which really is, I think, just vulnerable and authentic and, and a hard process that he came out the other end, I think, a better person for uh, what you can do today before you get trans on the book, there's kind of a, there's a section of the Gumroad website, which I think links to a blog post that Sahil wrote where he talks in a very, uh, I mean, vulnerable is the, the best word, but not kind of a woe is me pandering clickbait vulnerability, but just like just laying it out, right? And, and doing it in a really kind of well-written narrative, linear fashion. And, and you can, you know, if you're interested, you can go deeper into the story, but the the punchline is 
all-star cast of investors, Kleiner Perkins piles in to this, you know, 20-year-old's company, writes a big check or whatever, however old you were at the time, somewhere around 20. Um, and things are things are working for a while. And you can say, like on a on an absolute base, things were working the whole time, right? But but on a relative basis, maybe not working, maybe growth at one point maybe slows and doesn't maintain that hyperbolic growth curve. When the light bulb went off for you there and you realized, wow, I'm not sure that this business is going to be able to satisfy my investors' expectations, how did you how did you respond to that? Yeah, yeah. And this was definitely sort of highlights my sort of maybe my naivety or something at the time. And you know, I had one experience at a startup, which was Pinterest, right? Which is which is very grateful for, but also maybe makes it feel a little bit too easy, you know, like, yeah, for sure. You kind of strike gold, you know, the first time around. And, and, and so, yeah, I think that it was a little bit of like, wow, like, you know, and, and what I, my, my impression of of sort of Silicon Valley investors, and I I felt this with the seed with the A is like, they take risks, they make bets. And that's why venture is venture instead of value or public stock market, et cetera. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's sort of super high risk and, and people make bets early and it's, and it produces all this amazing value when it works. Right. And so when I went into the series B, which had been two and a half or so years after the A, because we'd raised so much and it was still just me basically at the time. So we had a long runway, which kind of another lesson is maybe you want a, a tighter feedback loop than that. But I went, I just sort of started talking and every quarter was up and to the right. I had board meetings with Kleiner. They were like, things look pretty good. Like every, you know, it's, it's still early and it's kind of shaky. We go up and down a little bit, but it's clearly generally up and to the right. And I have, I've published these graphs now as part of that article and other things. So you can see it. Most people would have no complaints, I think including myself, even as a founder CEO, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in this for a while. So it's fine that this, we're still early. Obviously COVID has changed the trajectory of the company a little bit in a positive direction. But uh, yeah, anyway, I, I went out to two investors and I specifically remember the first investor I talked to who was not currently an investor in the company was John Lilly from Greylock. And he was just a really helpful, good friend of mine. I really trusted him. And I just said, hey, I'd love to soft pitch you on Gumroad, right? And like, we're not probably not going to raise money yet. We have some time to figure it out, but I, we will. And or we need to, and uh, next year, and I love your thoughts on the deck and helping me make it better. And so he ran through it and he's like, you're going to have a hard time. Like you're going to have, a, just so you know, like you're probably going to be able to pull it off, which he was actually wrong about it. Well, pull off raising money or pull off Gumroad as a business? Pull off raising money. Pull okay. off the series. Yeah. And then I've learned since that if a bunch of investors tell you that you're definitely going to be able to close around, but then they don't offer <laughs> That's uh, you got to be a little uh, careful about that. But uh, anyway, yeah, he, that, that was the first instant. And he's amazing. I'm still great friends with him. Like he, he told me exactly the right thing, which was like, you're going to have a hard time. Like you should really go back and think pretty deeply about, about where the business is and, and where it needs to be. And then the number that I put in that essay is 20% month over month growth. And obviously that it's not a fixed number necessarily, but I think the important takeaway, it was just like, you really need to be growing at a sort of on a curve, right? On a 20% compounding month over month growth. And Gumroad was not. Gumroad was growing like slightly more than linear is, is how I would refer to it. And that's still true today. And yeah, it turns out when you're raising a series B, it's not really, you know, now kind of, it's kind of gone full circle. It is actually really incredibly risky. A lot of these series B investments that happen today, but back then it was like, you had product market fit. It was pretty clear. You're going to raise like a bunch of money and then you're going to hire a bunch of people. And you're basically going to do what Pinterest did when I, when I, right after I joined, right. Like, right. it works. Let's just scale this thing for like the next 10 years. Right. And when, yeah, and Gumroad just didn't have those signs. And so what I did was I went to Kleiner. I was like, we're in trouble. It looks like 
they gave us a bridge. So they offered uh, $2 million at a 4X liquidation preference, which basically means, yeah, it's pretty rough for folks who don't know what that means. It basically means that you have to, they have to return a 4X on their capital before anyone else makes anything, right? right. So effectively like a lot of downside protection. It's, people have told me since that it's like, it's a, they, it's a pretty aggressive thing, but it also shows that like, you know, we needed the money. Like we didn't really have options and, uh, and maybe it shows even how risky even that 2 million was for them. Well, and also just, it was at a point in time. So if you look over the last 30 years of venture, like right now that looks like way out of market predatory, you know, after the three or four years after 2008, you saw a lot more of that. You don't see any of that now for the most part. So it, it might be in part a reflection of the company, but it was also a reflection of just the times. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a, generally an important lesson is to be able to separate one yourself from your company, but then two yourself, your company from the market. You can't really yeah. predict what the market's going to do. No one could have predicted COVID and that was amazing for certain businesses and terrible for other businesses, right? Like it just, no one can predict these sorts of things, but yeah, we took that 2 million bucks. I told the team, I said, Hey, we just, we're doing this bridge. We're, we're going to have a hard time. We know what we need to do, which is everyone loves the story. Everyone loves the team. Like no one has any problems with like the design, you know, like none of that. It's just the numbers like that. We just need to, and we thought we'd have this long time horizon and, you know, we just weren't that short-term focused. And so we said, we're going to spend nine months, three quarters only focused on, we called it moving the needle, right? Just literally any, everything was just trying to get those numbers to move up in the upward direction. And it honestly just didn't work. It just didn't work. And you know, kind of my reflection on that was like the market just wasn't ready. It was, we had kind of hit the ceiling of like how many people are selling digital content independently in this way. And, and it just wasn't that large at the time. And even today, it's still not a huge, you know, there's no $50 billion greater economy company yet. It's still early, early days, I think, in the grand scope of, of all things. But yeah, we, we kind of, and then it, I basically said, look, if we don't hit 20% month over month growth, for kind of like at least leading up to when we when we raise we, when you know I'm, I'm constantly talking to investors throughout this process right these nine months I met with kind of 100 or so 150 investors which you can do when client early trade but but uh, yeah and then we didn't you know and it was it was nice because it almost was like I had almost I had split the layoffs into two which you know as a 22 23 year old kid like laying you know that was you know it's very hard to do that but for me it was still incredibly difficult but it helped a lot that everyone knew like what the decision kind of was, right? Like we had this all hands and I was like, look, I said in January, we need to be growing 20% month over month to like, you know, have a good shot at raising the B. We didn't, everyone knows that. And so, you know, it looks like we're going to have to, you know, the lay off a bunch of people and, and basically prioritize saving the company so that our users, our customers who rely, many of them rely on Gumroad for their income can continue to rely on Gumroad for their income, right? And so we basically made this decision, like there, there's sort of three constituencies of every company and hopefully they're all aligned, but often they're not. You have your customers, you have your team, your employees, and then you have your investors, right? And I basically told them like, you know, ultimately like, you know, the most important people in this equation are the customers. They're, they're, they're our creators. They're the reason we exist in the first place. So like, you know, investors are off first, but you know, team next and, you know, customers. And, and I've actually... With the crowdfunding and things, I've tried to kind of try to figure out how do I align these these three yeah. groups more? How do I blur the lines a little bit? Which I, I think crowdfunding plays a big role in. But yeah, that was kind of what happened was, you know, we, we kind of came up to that moment and it's like, we need to, you know, we, we basically need, you know, we may, we might raise more money. We might do this. We might still shut down. Who knows? But like, I want to be able to control 
my destiny. I want to be able to choose to do those things, not be forced to. And, and how, and how, how support at this point, how supportive, and I won't ask by, by firm name or angel name, but just maybe in general, how supportive were your investors during this kind of philosophical transition around how you were going to run the business? Yeah. I mean, I would say personally supportive in the sense that they knew who I was. And, you know, one thing I really, I think I did really well throughout this whole process, really from the beginning is I've always been super upfront and clear and I put everything in writing, right? Like that's kind of a theme of, of mine. And it, it's, it's great because when I do have these hard moments, no one is like, oh, Sahil's trying to like, you know, like everyone knows like where I stand on all of these issues. And, and so when I said, hey, look, like, I'm going to save the company. That's the most important thing for me. The way we do that is we have to basically lay almost everybody off. The sort of skeleton crew is going to help me get to a sort of a, a sort of self-sustaining, almost entirely automated business. And then as we, you know, I'm going to go figure, you know, my own life out, take a break from, you know, I, you know, up until sort of that nine months I was working, you know, all the time, basically, yeah. really trying to save the company. And a lot of the team was right. Not just me. And, and yeah, I need a break and I'm going to go, you know, probably leave San Francisco and, and come back and later. And, and yeah, they were, they were kind of the Danny Ram from index. And this is not like a, a critique or anything. So I, I think I can kind of use his name here, but he, he, he framed it really well, which is like, we want to bet on you. And, you know, his concern, quote unquote, was like, you don't want to spend five years of your life, you know, working on something that doesn't pan out. Like you're an amazing person. You can design, you can code. We will throw money at you. The second you have a new company idea. Yeah. And so just make sure you're aware of the kind of the opportunity cost of sticking yeah, with that you're working on the right thing. Exactly. Which I think is hundred percent totally fair. And, but yeah, for me, I, you know, maybe it was lack of courage, who knows, but I was just like, I need to support our creators. Like that's my number one priority. And then once we're profitable, I can have some of these conversations. We can sell the business. We yeah. can find a new CEO, you know, whatever that may look like, but I need to be able to do it on my own terms. And yeah. Something, something that jumped out at me in your writing and I don't know if you strung these two phrases together or if I did it in my mind, but you talk about kind of the dichotomy, like, like the, the, the conventional wisdom, the orthodoxy, of, and certainly it's easy to say the Silicon Valley, but it's business globally is the term capture value. And how do we capture value? And, and you talk about creating value and the kind of dichotomy between how do we capture more value versus how do we create more value? And in, once you lean into what is, what is frankly a slightly more missional posture of creating value, you're, you're, you're likely going to be at odds with, with your capital partners. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I think we live, in a, we, live in a, we live in a world today where I think there are investors in, in more and more, and you see this, you see a, a larger cohort of these kind of values aligned investors emerging, but but the shift from capturing value to creating value and the way you think about your customers and the way you think about the creator economy, I think is, it's still probably a new way of thinking, even though you were, you were having that thought, you know, a, a decade ago, frankly. Yeah. And I, th I think, I think, you, yeah. So the dichotomy, it really was a clarifying moment for me when I made that connection. And it, it actually came about in, a, ironically, a Kleiner Perkins CEO summit, Bill Gates was asked, I think by John Doerr, you know, it, this was kind of post iPhone, right? Like Apple had kind of started to eat Microsoft's lunch. And obviously, both companies have done insanely well since. But he basically asked Bill, like, do you kind of 
you kind of pioneered personal computing, like a lot of these things. And like, do you, you know, Apple is actually more valuable than, or whatever than Microsoft now, like, what do you, do you like, you know, what, you know, do you, you feel like you, do you feel like you created a, an immense amount of value, you captured very little and, and, and how do you kind of feel about that? And his answer was something along the lines, and I'm sure I've kind of like rewritten it in my head so many times at this point, but what I remember was something along the lines of this, this is what businesses do. They create a lot of, they create some amount of value and then they capture some amount of that value, right? Um, and some businesses capture a lot of the value and some capture very little, you know? And, 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 you know, when people say the word platform, I think that kind of implies on the little end, right? Where they're creating a lot of value, more value for the people using the platform than the platform itself, right? Versus like, you might think of like a, I don't know, like a, 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 a retail store is capturing roughly 50% of all the value that they're creating, right? And, and so you can kind of play with, with the, and that was really clarifying for me because it made me realize like what actually matters here is creating value. It's, I, and, and capturing value matters in as far as you can continue to create value, right? And so sometimes it means you want to capture value so you can go raise money so you can hire more engineers, create more value. You, you, but, you, but I think drawing the line between those two things was really important for me to, to be like, okay, how much value do, like first, how much value do I want to create, right? What is enough? Is there a number, right? Like that's another big thing here is like, what, what's so great about a billion dollar company, right? Just because it's a unicorn. Like, what is that? What is it? Right. Why not 900? You know, it's just like, we have a lot of these, these kind of black and white ways of looking at things. It's kind well, of just very one dimensional way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very one dimensional, very binary sort of way of looking at it. You've either made it, you haven't, you've succeeded or you failed. Like these things generally don't, there's no scoreboard, right? Like external to the universe, like, like taking these things down, but but yeah, I think I think getting to a point where I realized, and 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 even Gummer, just the fact that we literally are four creators, right? It like really helped me clarify that. Where it's like, wow, the, the word here is create. It's not the capture economy, right? Right, right. Uh, and and so yeah, that was really clarifying me. And 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 I think I have a line in the in the, in the essay that says something like, you know, it, it you know, we, we raised something like it ended up being around ten million dollars with all in with the bridge and everything. And we, at that point, we, now it's up to $500 million sent to creators. But I think when I published the articles around 170 million or something like that. Hmm. Uh, and so I turn in theory, you know, you could look at this and say, I turned 10 million into 170 million. For which, sure. Which for is sure. Tax, which is like a, an amazing return for a VC. It didn't go to the VCs. <laughs> so, right, right. you know, and I think what I say is it was, it was kind of a crappy investment, but it was still a great company. But just because they did a bad job of capturing that value. You created it. <laughs> So I, I, I yeah, still, I, I feel like, yeah, exactly. I've done it. I mean, yeah, we, you're, you're totally right. And, 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 you know, I, I think some of the nuance that I find kind of entered, especially as I started investing more is, is that this, this is kind of the nice thing about, about a portfolio kind of industry like venture or publishing, or, you know, is you all, you are allowed to make bets and you are allowed to kind of create value for the world. And, and, and it's fine. Like, it's not like the investors are like upset. Right. They're like, oh, wow, you did this. You actually created like a decent outcome for the company. It's not going to return our fund. We don't really care because we're in Uber and Slack and Pinterest. Right. 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 But but it's still cool. Like, it, you know, and and I, I think it's really important. I, I see it a lot now that I invest. There are a lot of founders that they have this like very short term view of looking at it and, you know, of like and, and optimizing for their company or. And I just have never really had that approach. Like, and I really believe I'm, I'm going to be hopefully as long as I'm alive, I'm probably going to be, so I'm going to be investing. I'm going to be hopefully building. I'm going to be participating in these conversations as long as people will listen. Yeah. And, and so I have to play this insane, like a 40 
decade game, right? Like I'm not in any rush now to, to kind of prove myself or, or even arguably go back to the capturing value thing. Like I don't, what do I, you know, what would $5 million in my bank do to me? Like, what would I do with that? I would probably just invest it in crypto. Like I wouldn't really do much with that, you know, like, I, I just don't, I, I don't think in that, in that way for what, for yeah. yeah, well, it's going to make you a bear, which I'm certain you already are, but sought after and coveted early stage investor, because that is, everyone says they think that way. I mean, you can't yeah, win in the venture business if you're not at least espousing that philosophy, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not certain that the reality matches the, the, the marketing brochure always could, could I, I want to. I have, I have a bunch of qu questions. Talk about like what the catalyst was for you writing the book. Like yeah. why, why do that? Yeah, honestly, I mean, so the, re the reason I wrote reflecting on my failure, failure to build a billion dollar company, the article that kind of went viral and kickstarted my, a lot of my writing and, and, and tweeting and, and things. And it really also led to the book. I, I wrote that to be basically because I was having the same conversation a bunch of times with a bunch of people who really didn't know what happened to Gumroad. Like we kind of just went off the face of the planet. Some people thought we got acquired. Some people thought it was still going. Some people thought it died, like all these sorts of things. You know, people were kind of playing the telephone game. And, and so I wanted to write kind of like my perspective and say, here's my story. You know, it may not be entirely accurate. Who knows? Like my memory is not perfect, but, but this is what I believe happened. And everyone's welcome to kind of tell their own story as well. And, but it was kind of to correct the record almost. And I wrote it for my mom, actually, because I remember like I talked to her and huh. I was like, when did, when did you learn about the government layoffs and all these sorts of things for me? And she's like, never, like literally just now, like I kind of had to hear from third party sources, TechCrunch, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I felt terrible. I was like, I need to write about this. Like there's like this, I need, like, I need closure. My mom needs closure. Maybe there are other people who, who need closure. So I, that's kind of why I wrote that article. It kind of ironically, it was almost like a goodbye. You know, it's like, here are my reflections. Like, I'm closing this chapter. I feel good, you know, and, and now I can move on. And, and then Penguin reached out and said, Hey, you wrote this great thing. It seems like it's resonating really well with this community of yours. And you seem like you can write. And so, you know, we thought about writing a book and I said, no, not really. Like I want to write science fiction and fantasy, <laughs> but nonfiction business book, like, mm, you know, not a huge, you know, there are a lot of fluffy books. I don't know. I didn't have the best thing impression of them though. I do. There's plenty of business books that I do love as well. And have been incredibly informative uh, and, and for me and transformational for me. But, but yeah, I, I kind of went through the same exercise, which was what happened after I wrote that article was everyone would start asking me questions like, how do I build a business? How do I sell? How do I market? How, do, how did you sell government in the early days? How do you build? Blah, blah, blah. And even my mom was like, ask, you know, like, how do I start a business? Right. This is the beauty of the creator economy and no code. It's like more and more people are getting into it, which I think is awesome. Like I think yeah. it's, it's a great force, but it's still hard. It's still like, you have to kind of connect a lot of dots and it's not uh, as easy as it will be 10 years from now, 20, you know, it's only going to get easier and easier and easier. And that, that's kind of why I wrote the book is I wanted a, a thing that I could show people and be like this, if you read this end to end, like I, I will tell you at least what I believe is a kind of pretty repeatable playbook, how I think about building a business, starting with community, finding your customers, talking to them, getting to know them, solving their problems, building a product, you yep. know, that product, marketing the product, hiring people, doing, you know, can I, can I kind of consolidate all those, you know, the 10 years of learnings from, from Gumroad and, and, and kind of put them into a book. And it was kind of hard because a lot of the, a lot of what I find with a lot of these business books is like, you have to pick one idea. And then it's kind of like, it's a kind of a, a, you know, everything to a hammer looks like a nail sort of thing, right? right? Yeah. You're like, oh, the solution to everything is no code, right? Or, or code or VC or blitz scaling or, or whatever. And, and I really wanted to kind of 
almost try to create a third path where it's not anti-VC. It's not kind of that style of writing. It's also not pro-VC. It's not kind of pro that style of writing. It's really like, and kind of like even the essay, hopefully it's like, look, this is my story. These are my set of beliefs. This is kind of where they come from. This is my worldview. And you know, take it or leave it, right? Um, it's really cool because it's, it's not abstract. It's not, it's not a, a bunch of loosely affiliated kind of philosophies. It's very specific. It's yeah. very particular. And those personally, those are the types of, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of business books in general, but those that I have gravitated toward historically have fallen more in that category. And it's, and again, it's, it's vulnerable without being self-deprecating and it's a lot of conventional wisdom, but it's packaged up. It, it feels real. It doesn't feel yeah. folksy. And so again, I go out, yeah, you bet go out and buy it. It's, you know, like I say, it's, at one point he talks about he was chasing a unicorn, but it turned out to be a Shetland pony, which is <laughs> just, just hilarious. Okay. There are a couple of those that I threw in there. It's, it's, it's cute. I love it. So where I want to talk more about minimalist entrepreneur, but I want to get to some of this question. So I'm yeah. going to close this chapter, uh, both literally and metaphorically. Where can they find the book? Yeah. I mean, you can find it in all the usual places, Amazon, Audible. I, re- I narrated the audiobook, which was fun. All, all, all the usual suspects. And you can also okay. go to Amazon. You don't have any, you don't have any preferred. Honestly, my, my, my preference is whatever is easiest for, for people. And this is also kind of has, has become a theme for me. And I, I talk a little bit about it in the book where there's, there's just like what, this is all about serving customers, you know, and I just want to, I just want to help people with whatever they need help with and then kind of get out of the way. And so I, I, you know, I have opinions, certainly as, you know, the founder of Gumroad on self-publishing and Amazon and blah, blah, blah. But, but ultimately I think like the market is what it is and, and people should, you know, if, if you're, I, I will have zero complaints if you, if you purchase it. However, you know, even if yeah, someone DM me on Twitter saying, you know, I'm a student in India, like, how do I, you know, I can't afford the book. And I literally just was like, pirate it, just pirate it. You know, if, if you, if, if you end up one day with the money, like I'm sure Penguin would appreciate the. Yeah. You know, but like, look, just, just, just get, just solve your own problem. However, you know, what, as long as you believe you're doing the right thing, like, guess what? When I learned Photoshop, I pirated Photoshop as a, I was a 13 year old kid. I'm not going to pay for it. You know, um, obviously I'm not condoning any of this. We'll scrub that part out of the transcript. <laughs> so last question, can you talk about how you're staying on top of the web 3.0 innovation as it relates to the creator economy? I mean, I don't even know how to, I mean, it's, <laughs> I feel like every day I wake up and I check Twitter and it's like, what has happened, you know, last night? Like, it's just a crazy, it's a crazy thing. I know people who are full-time in crypto that can't even keep up with it. You know, I think the thing that I do is that I just like to, I just like to talk to people. I like to talk to smart people who are in it. And, you know, I have some credibility and brand and reputation with Comrade. So I'm, I'm just really open and saying, Hey, look, if anyone has ideas, if you're a creator, if you're an engineer, if you're, you know, I would love to hear how you think Gumroad, or maybe not. Maybe you have your own idea, and you just want to know what I think about your idea as someone who's who's built for this kind of this set of users. And so, yeah, it's just being super open minded, you know, and 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 paying attention and following my own interests. Like, look, maybe Gumroad never does Web three. Maybe, and you know, like we we got to do what's right for Gumroad. Yeah, yeah. it got, kind of almost has like its own personality <laughs> at this point. Uh, and we have a lot of stuff in the works. We have plenty of Web two stuff in the works. That's pretty awesome. We've certainly thought about NFTs and, and these sorts of things. And I, I think the what I, what I, you know, this, this isn't really part of your question, but I, I think it's kind of almost implied, which is like, you know, how, how are you staying on top? It kind of implies that you, there's like a time you, you got to move, 
You got to move. Yep. And I really believe that like patience is super key. Like we're very early. I started government in 2011. It took until 2020 with COVID for anyone to really say creator economy. Like it's, it's very, very, very early. Like slow down. You're absolutely it, right. You're absolutely right. Follow people, your interests. People on our orbit, very smart people who I think very highly of will say we're behind. We're behind. You know what I mean? And, and you're absolutely right. You know, there were people who in 1997, after Netscape 1.0 got released, thought they were behind, right? Yeah. And it's, we got a lot of room to run here. And yeah. I mean, you see this patient, Nokia, BlackBerry, BBM, WhatsApp, yeah. iPhone, Slack. Right. Like, it's just so, you know, I mean, I remember one story real quick was, it was some crazy thing where like, AOL bought that flip camera and basically for like $700 million and then shut it down because- yep. You know, there's no room for like a kind of a prosumer camera in this way. And then the iPhone happened, you know? So it's like, yeah. how do you really, and then Zoom and like all these things, you know, it's just so hard to predict. And so what, what I, what I say, what I tell founders is look, as long as you have conviction in your idea and you have the energy to keep working on it, like, it, you know, obviously, you know, be aware of your opportunity costs, but like, I know with Gumroad that like, I just stuck with it. I didn't know exactly why after a while, but you know, maybe just inertia, but eventually kind of pay off in a way that, you know, I think a lot of other people may have, may have not stuck with it for that, for that period of time. So. Sahil, thank you so much. I, I told Sahil at the top of the call, I was looking forward to this interview more than any other interview I've done. And if you go back and look, you know, it's, it's a pretty like robust, you know, impressive group of folks that we, that we've had as guests on speaker series, but there was just something about your, vibe and writing and background that I just knew I was gonna I knew I was going to enjoy this personally and and I know our I know our uh, other participants did as well so thank you so much you're a cool dude thank you doing what you're doing man I love it thanks for your time you're very welcome and uh we'll see you soon awesome Sounds Bye, good. everybody see ya this episode is brought to you by bolster Leadership and board roles are mission critical to the success of any business, yet they're the hardest roles to fill. Bolster connects high growth companies with trusted and flexible executive talent, matching executives with startup and scale up CEOs based on each company's unique needs and each executive's unique experience. Quickly and cost effectively fill an executive consulting or board role by visiting bolster.com. That's B O L S T E R. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.